Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Well, American men are in an educational crisis, dropping out of college at record rates. But working class men who are also religious are bucking that trend. Dr. Ilana Horwitz is an assistant professor of Jewish studies and sociology at Tulane University. She's also the author of God, Grades, and Graduation uh, and had just this powerful piece in the New York Times about what she's learned about the connection between religion and education, social capital, and so many things. This is this is some of my favorite stuff uh, and uh, really pleased to have uh, Dr. Horwitz joining us today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, so let's begin uh, and start with this uh, this journey that you've been on. You followed the lives of almost thirty three hundred teenagers, uh, and so just give us kind of the baseline. What what did you learn, uh, especially as it relates to religion and education? Yes, that's right. So I actually used a data set that was collected by some amazing researchers at Notre Dame University, and in two thousand three, they realized that we really don't understand what. Um, religion looks like in the lives of American teenagers. And so they embarked on this amazing nationally representative study that followed adolescents. Uh, the teenagers were 13 to 17 years old when they joined the study in 2003. And they followed them for 10 years, both using surveys that were administered repeatedly over this 10-year period. But they also did these very, very rich, long, in-depth interviews with 220 of them who they sat uh, down and talked with every couple of years over the 10-year period. And so I used this data, and what I found was this story that uh, growing up in intensely religious homes uh, in the United States actually leads kids to have more years of education, um, partly because they end up getting better grades, um, but sometimes they end up at less selective schools. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that you uh, mentioned in your piece uh, that I want to dig into is, is you got into these uh, teenage boys from working class families, uh, regardless of race. Uh, but you looked at all those components in terms of what uh, they're not smarter, uh, but for some reason these things are, are working differently for them. Uh, how does how did that all play in? Yes, I wanted to understand how religious upbringing influences people from different groups uh, in potentially different ways. And the group that I found um, that really stood out to me is these white, uh, or white, black, and Latino boys who grow up in these working-class homes. Um, for them, the role of religion matters so much, both uh, because of the dimension of belief, but also belonging. And so boys who believe really strongly in God, who believe that God is watching over them, they, they are able to overcome the sense of despair that so many working class Americans are feeling these days because despair causes us to turn to risky behaviors. It causes people to fall off the path to educational success. Um, it doesn't take much sort of for working class boys in particular to get involved in risky behaviors. So believing that God is actually watching over you over you is really helpful 
But there's also this social capital element of religion, right? That when we go to religious institutions and when we're involved, we develop relationships with ministers, with other peers, with our peers' parents. And so there ends up being much more oversight of kids, even when they leave the church. Um, and this buffers them also in a social dimension from that despair that's so prevalent in working class communities right now. I thought that was such a, uh, a crucial part. Uh, one of the things that really caught my attention that kind of kind of shook me. Be, you talked about those uh, deaths of despair. Uh, you talk about social capital, which uh, we are firm believers in on this program, that, that it uh, does so many things. But you, you had this line in your piece in the New York Times uh, that I'd like you to, to dig into a little for us. Uh, you said uh, despair doesn't die. It gets transmitted to the children. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have been struck by that line as well. One of the things that really stuck out to me when I was reading these interviews with these boys is we tend to think of despair as something that happens in adulthood, right? All the stories of the opioid crisis, it begins when people are adults. But actually, I noticed that this despair actually starts much earlier because as boys are watching their fathers in particular and other men in their community struggle, right, with physical pain, with the opioids, with alcohol, with drug addiction, all that stuff, it really stays with them. And and despair is something that they feel at both an individual level, but it's also felt at this community level, right? Because it's not just their own families. They see it happening all around them. Um, one of my research assistants at Stanford when I was doing this research, he grew up in a working class community in Michigan, and he said that about half of his class of his high school class had already died and he was only in his late 30s at the time um, and they had already died of um, drugs, alcohol, opioids. Um, and so, yeah, we see this intergenerational transmission of despair um, really playing out in the lives of young kids. Yeah, you also pointed out uh, something else I thought was really important, again, especially for these working class kids, uh, that faith and, and religious organizations help them develop social capital that, that many affluent peers of theirs uh, would get from other places. Right. Yeah, so if you're an affluent kid growing up in America today, right, you have lots of sources of social capital. Your parents who have gone to college have worked, probably work in professional organizations where they know lots of people. They know lots of people from their own colleges and universities. They tend to live in neighborhoods with much more stability. People don't move around as much. Uh, and that there are more safe places for people to gather and to connect. But for working class Americans right now, that, that sort of level of social infrastructure just isn't there. Playgrounds aren't as prevalent. There's not as many trees. There isn't in this new gig economy that working class families are working in. There aren't opportunities for people to have um, those water cooler moments to develop those relationships. Like the workplace just isn't a stable source of social capital, capital anymore. And so, Religious institutions are one of the last remaining forms of, you know, free social capital that's available to people. Yeah, that's so important, especially coming out of the pandemic, plus the gig economy. Uh, all of that has, uh, has unraveled, as, as you said, some of those uh, common uh, places where we would get social capital or develop that kind of linking arms connection uh, that is so important. Uh, before I let you go, uh 
Doctor, let me, let me ask you uh, one. What out of all of this uh, really surprised you the most? And then what's the one thing we all should be thinking about as it relates uh, to your study and your piece? Yeah, thanks for asking that. One of the things that surprised me is that I went into this research, and like a lot of people think, is that there's a separation, right, legally of church and state, which I think is a very good thing. But I was curious, and what I found actually was that you know, a good quarter of America still organizes the lives of um, uh, organizes uh, their lives around religion, mm-hmm. and those religious dispositions that they learn early on at home end up. Um, seeping in through the public school door in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect. Because as kids learn the kinds of dispositions that are valued in their religious families and in their church communities, right, the dispositions of being conscientious and being cooperative, those are dispositions that happen to be highly valued in the public school context. Mm. And so what I found and what surprised me was the synergy between uh, churches and public schools that give some of these kids an academic advantage, And then you also asked me about what we should all be thinking about. Um, You know, one of the things I hope that people walk away from this book is just to experience what it's like to live in the shoes of others. I think religion is really, um, we're living at a time where there's a lot of obviously political polarization and religion plays into that. And I I want people to develop more empathy for people who grow up as um, uh, in religious homes, uh, and I also want them to understand the lives of atheists. And so, I talk about atheists a lot, uh, in a chapter of my book as well. So, this I, ha- I I want people to to develop more empathy for people who live very different lives than themselves. Oh, fantastic. Dr. Ilana Horwitz, again, Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies and Sociology at Tulane University, uh, author of the book God, Grades, and Graduation. I'm picking this one up. Uh, just fabulous research, incredible writing, and uh, we look forward to having you back on the program. This is one of those crucial conversations that can make a difference for so many and help all of us to understand each other uh, and this amazing society that we can actually build together. Uh, Dr. Horwitz, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll step aside for one last commercial break. That's some good, good stuff there from Dr. Horwitz. Uh, Important for all of us uh, to really think through in an important way, especially as it comes to young men in our society. When we come back, Ukraine's first lady is praising the courage of her country's women. We'll talk about that in the monologue coming up next. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.